I, uh, I was in the desert for uh, 10 days and got back on Wednesday, and usually when I go out there, after a couple days, uh, all the, the hard layers start wearing off me, and then I, I cry the whole time. Um, and interesting, this time, I, that didn't happen. It was all good, but that just wasn't the case. I got here last night to the service, and every song we sang, I started crying. And I thought, you know, something about um, the community of God's people, we are... Uh, solitude and silence are important things, but we are made for each other. We're made for the company of one another, and God always does something um, when we obey him and choose to, to gather and to gather under his word. Um, we are continuing this uh, little six-week series in Zechariah. This is our, our third lesson today. Um, with, our, with each of our kids, when they turned uh, 14, we did a little kind of... Uh, Step to, a, step to adulthood, kind of a uh, weekend for them. And uh, I would write them, we'd take them away for the weekend, and I'd write them a letter and share with some things with them. But one of the things I tell, told each of them as I sat with them, I, I told them it's, it's up to you to determine who's going to tell you who you are. And because um, there is a slew of people standing in line um, in our world that are, are just lined up to tell you who you are. And it's up to you to decide, is it going to be God who tells you who you are, or is it going to be somebody else? Um, and that's a choice you've got to make. Um, and we've all been, um, our hearts, all of us, have been instructed by all sorts of other sources that have told us something about who we are. Perhaps in your growing up years, you, you heard uh, words of affirmation and encouragement, and they were poured into you, and that instructed you about who you were. For others of us, perhaps what you heard all the time was judgment and condemnation and not measuring up, and that stuck in your heart. We uh, give attention to the people around us, don't we? What their opinion is and what they think, and that must be who I am. Um, Our society tells us it's got its own set of measurements, and we're all familiar with them because they, they, they get our attention all the time. Productivity equals value. Knowledge equals usefulness. Your position equals your giftedness. Or perhaps just the simple stuff of more stuff means more value or more worth or how I look um, determines my acceptance and my place of belonging. And then in the midst of that, our own hearts speak out, and they're not always correct. Um, I love the passage in the New Testament says, um, when, our hearts, when our hearts judge us, condemn us, God is greater than our hearts even to tell us something different. Ultimately, the only true and reliable source to tell me and tell you who you are and what we're created for is the one who is our creator, the one who determines who we are, what our value is. It's the Lord himself. So what does he say to us? Um, if he were here, what, what would he speak into our hearts? Um, who are we? Not just in his sight, because we all say, well, positionally I'm that, but really that's, positionally God thinks I'm great, but then God thinks everybody's great, so I'm not really. But in reality, who are we? What does God say? In the very depth of our being. Zechariah chapter 3 is the fourth of Zechariah's night visions following uh, the, the man on the red horse. Jerry ran through a couple of these for you guys. The four horns, the, the four craftsmen, this, this man with the measuring line. 
um, all encouraging um, visions, reminding people, what did you hear last week? God is in your midst. God is here. He's not distant. He's not absent. He is here. And he desires to bless his people. And then if you remember, uh, at the very, if you read the very last verse of chapter 2, it ends with a, a kind of an ominous statement. And it says that, be silent, all flesh, for God has been aroused from his holy habitation. If we were all talking and talking, all of a sudden we heard this voice, thunder, saying, saying, be silent, all flesh, for God has been aroused from his holy habitation, we would get silent. We'd get quiet. Because it sounds ominous. It sounds like the Mount Sinai kind of thing where this cloud's coming down and and we better not say anything because we're all going to get struck. And I wonder what Zechariah thought when he heard those words. He probably thought, this has been great. I'm getting all this blessing, and God's in our midst, and us prophets don't usually get these kind of messages. This is awesome. And then he probably thought, here it comes. The hammer's coming down. It's time to hear the words of judgment and condemnation. And he would have thought so because, remember, they, they were small people. This, this vision of Abraham seeing the stars and that your people would number the stars of the sky and you'd be this great nation, they were in a time going, it's just, there's hardly any of us. And we're this remnant and we're unknown and we're just coming back from actually being um, exiled because of our sin. How could God possibly bless us? And perhaps he's just going to bring more judgment. So let's see what happens here. It starts out, Right here in the first verses of Zechariah 3, it says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan was standing at his right hand uh, to accuse him. Interesting, most of the other visions in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah will see something, and he will say what we would have said. What is that? <laughs> and what does that mean? And then the angel answers him, and it goes back and forth. Here in this chapter, we get none of that because it is as clear as day. It's just a vision. He just gives it, and he knows what's going on. He knows the people here. It's a familiar situation, and he knows what's happening. We see this familiar face. He sees Joshua, the high priest, standing there. So remember when they came back from the exile, the small remnant of people, including Zechariah and Haggai, and it was Zerubbabel who was going to be the provisional governor, and then there is um, Zechariah himself, and then Joshua, who was the, the high priest at the time. And so he and Zechariah would have been buddies. They would have known each other well. And so he sees in his vision and goes, I know this guy. This is Joshua. And it says that he was standing, verses 1 and 3. The actual word, this uh, particular word that's used here for standing, is a, a derivative of the word for worship or liturgy. And so the, the idea here is Joshua was probably standing as the high priest, and he's probably, uh, Zechariah is seeing a vision of the temple, perhaps of what it was or what it was going to be, and, and Joshua is not just standing out somewhere, he's standing ready to offer up the sacrifices. He's ready to act as the high priest in the temple, and, and Zechariah is seeing this picture of him. Remembering they don't have a temple yet, right? But he sees this vision of the high priest about to offer up the worship that the high priest is supposed to give here in the temple. Maybe, maybe right on the edge of going into the Holy of Holies, which would have been his role. 
And then we have a second individual that says we have this angel of the Lord is standing by. So in Zechariah, we've got lots of angels running around doing things. But here we have someone called the angel of the Lord. And that should be familiar because in the Old Testament, a number of different places, we, we hear about this one who's the angel of the Lord um, shows up. One of the first places is with Abraham. And uh, these, these men show up at his, at his home in his tent, and they're on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah to cast judgment. And there's a couple of angels, and there's another one. The angels leave eventually, these men who are angels, on their way to go bring judgment. And there's one that stays behind and talks with Abraham. It's the angel of the Lord. And it turns out it's, it's the second person of the Trinity in a pre-incarnate form. Jesus was there, and it's called the angel of the Lord. I think that's the same one who wrestles with, with um, Jacob out in the wilderness. And he shows up several different times, this pre-incarnate um, uh, Jesus coming before his time. And here we have this angel of the Lord, Jesus himself, the second person of Trinity, standing by Joshua the high priest. And we have God, who we discover here in verse 3, that, that God the Father is standing there too in, in the background. And then third of all, we have Satan who's called the accuser, and he's called the accuser because that's all he does, always. And he's been doing it to us all week long. It just comes in his own special way, over and over again, accusing. And he's accusing Joshua before the throne. So it's like a courtroom, and he's going, here's Joshua, and this guy is guilty. He's guilty is what he's saying. And he's pointing the finger at him and accusing him. We don't know what he says, but he could have been saying things like, he shouldn't be here. What is he doing here? He's, they've just been out in the 70 years because of their sin. What is he doing here? Perhaps he was saying that he's sinful and unholy and that he's covered in his own sins and the sins of his nation. Perhaps he was telling him, you are just nothing. Do you ever feel that accusation? You are nothing. You're, you're a high priest. You don't even have a temple. What is that about? Right? telling him he has no value, telling him that this great nation is just a people in ruins, or perhaps telling him what we sometimes hear, you are not his child. You don't belong. And that's all happening here in this midst, and Zechariah is watching it go on. But the angel of the Lord, this, the advocate, the one that we have today, our mediator between us and God, calls upon God the Father here in verse 3. It says, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? And the second person Trinity calls upon God the Father to, to make a declaration to Satan. The Lord of hosts, who we heard about so much in chapter 1, rejects the accusations. He rejects them. And it's, he has actually tender words that he speaks. And says to him, he says, the Lord has done what? He's chosen Jerusalem, and you are like a brand plucked from the fire. Isn't it great to be chosen? When someone says, you're saying he's outcast, he's nobody, he doesn't belong, and the Lord of hosts says, no, he's chosen. This one is chosen. And then he says he's this brand plucked from the fire. It's like the stick in the fire, and the fire's going out, and it's about ready to be extinguished is how they felt. And it's like God pulled it out, and he blows on it, it flames up again. It's just about to be extinguished, but he does not let it go out. And he declares to him, you are my chosen. You are beloved. You are 
rescued out. You were cared for. Perhaps he's, it's a declaration that you are mine and you don't belong to the enemy. And we, we should get excited about that. Um, it's good news for us. But the fact is, um, Joshua um, would have been shocked by that. If we had seen his expression here as he heard those words to him, he would have been shocked. And Zechariah himself would have been shocked. And the reason is, it tells us um, why it says, it says, how could God declare such a thing when Joshua is standing there? And it was to say, he's clothed in filth, garments of filth. So he's being declared these things while he's standing there with these garments. And it says, he was standing before the angel of the Lord, verse 3, before the second person of the Trinity and before the throne, right outside the Holy of Holies. And it says he's clothed with, with filthy garments. The, the word filth is not just like the, our, the kids playing out here in the grass and the dirt and getting a little messy. Um, it's it's the, the word for excrement. He's covered in just the worst of filth. And you can't miss it. You just see it and you can smell it and you know it. And so when they hear these, these tender words from God, they would have been shocked because how can God say that? when I'm standing like this in front of him. And not only that, he's about to do the work in the temple covered like that. Zechariah, as he saw that, might have recalled Isaiah 64, 6. It says, we all have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Scriptures tell us that the, the high priest, when he would go to the temple, he would first have to bring a sacrifice, and he would have to offer a sacrifice for his sins and the sins of his family. And then he would, there was a, a basin of water before entering, entering the Holy of Holies that he would dip his hands in and he'd wash as a symbol of, of becoming clean on behalf of the people. And then he would enter into the Holy of Holies in order to offer up the sacrifices for the whole nation on their behalf. But he had to be clean to do so. Exodus chapter 28 and Exodus 30 both tell us that failure to do that, to enter in filthy and uncovered, uh, meant death for the high priest. And so they couldn't just go in. They didn't have access to do that without the sacrifices. To walk in with those garments would have, would have been death to the high priest, which is why they're so surprised here. And so Zechariah sees Joshua standing before a holy God, ready to, to carry out his service of worship, and he is covered in filth of his sins and the people's sins. And by the way, it's not just for that day or that year. It's been 70 years of, of no sacrifices at all, of, of the iniquity just building, building, and building. And here he is about to enter the very presence of God. And that goes on to chapters, verses 4 and 5. He gets new clothes, new clothes. What happens here? It says, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, so the angel of the Lord speaks to these other servants around, and he says, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. It's, a, it's, it's incredible. He's standing there. And suddenly the servants gather around him and they, they strip off these, these, these old garments, these, these filthy things, and, and they take them away. And God declares to him, your iniquity 
is removed, which is, which is our longing, isn't it? It's, it's what we needed. It's one thing we needed. When I was in college, um, I probably shared this story before, my friend Tom and I, uh, during uh, winter break, why we went to the Grand Tetons in winter, I don't know. But um, we, uh, we flew from Chicago into Casper, Wyoming, because my friend Tom had, uh, his uncle lived in Casper, and we borrowed his, um, his Honda Civic, um, but it was like in the early 70s, so it was yellow, and they were like the size of a Mini Cooper back then, and really little. So we borrowed this Honda Civic, and we had our cross-country skis sticking out the window, and we drove out to the Grand Teton National Park, because we were going to cross-country ski with backpacks up into the mountains for 10 days. And we got there, and there was so much snow, they wouldn't even let us into the park. So we drove over Jackson Hole, this Jackson Pass there. I remember the car barely made it. We were like, go, go, go. And um, went all the way around to um, the north entrance of Yellowstone and came into the north entrance, and uh, there was still nobody there. So we just um, parked, and um, I remember the snow banks from the road were like 12 feet high. And um, we put on our cross-country skis and these 60-pound packs, and we headed back into um, North Yellowstone for 10 days. Um, and we weren't, um, cross-country skiing was a little, wasn't real familiar to us. And then we had, these, we had these packs that made you go like this, you know. And so we were just, just falling over all the way up the mountain. And um, it was gorgeous. But um, it was freezing cold. And so we had these, I had, you know, full-long underwear on and socks. And I had this wool cap. And then I had a down jacket and then an overcoat on that and then the backpack. And we're doing this with these packs, and we just soaked in sweat, just soaked through everything. And then we'd stop, and it's like 15 below, I'm serious, and it would just freeze solid. It just, the, the ice, it was like, like sweat ice cubes, you know, it was just, um, and then so, and then we'd start going get it melt, and it'd go back and forth. Then we'd get to our campsite, set it up, we'd take it off. I never took my long underwear off once for 10 days, or my little hat, and we get in the tent, and then it would all melt again, and it just reeked. It was just, it was just horrific. And um, for 10 days, 10 days we did that. So we get out from there. We get back in the car. We drive back to Casper, and I still remember coming and knocking on the door of his uncle's house. And my hair was super long, and you could, I could bend it any way I wanted it to go, and it would just, like, stick like that. And we knocked on the door, and he opened the door, and he just took one look, and he just said, back door. And... Um, <laughs> They had, a, they had this basement back door, and they had this big wash tub, and we went back there. And I remember stripping off our clothes, and we were, like, trying to bathe in this tub to get, to get clean. And it was so good to get that stuff off, you know. And then to grab my clothes for flying and put them on, and just like, ah, oh, this is how it's supposed to be. And that's the picture here where they're just, he's just covered in this, this metaphor for all of the weight of sin of his nation is on him. And suddenly God just speaks a word and it's taken. It's just gone. And God says it's removed. But it doesn't end there. God doesn't take away our sin and then send us off and say, good luck with that. Don't do that again. He doesn't do that. And it says here in... Um, um, it continued on, it says, Behold, I've taken away your iniquity from you. And then he says, And I will clothe you with pure vestments. And these are the vestments of a high priest. And then Zechariah says, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they clothed him with the garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing 
identify. It's not just a casting off of the old, but then God steps in. He says, I'm going to give you something new as well. I'm going to, I'm going to make you different. You are not going to be the same person you were before, which is why Zechariah is like, he's like watching this. It's a vision, right? He's supposed to watch these things. He gets into the vision. He actually speaks into it. He's looking. He's going, it's gone, and his iniquity is removed. And suddenly, they're putting on the, all the, the, these beautiful vestments of the high priest. And Zechariah is so excited about it. He goes, give him a hat, too. Give him the hat, right? Um, speaks out. And they said, okay, we'll do that. And they do it. And they put this turban. It's actually described in Exodus 28, verses 36 to 38, and Exodus 39, 30 and 31. The high priest had this turban on his head, and, on, and it's described. And on the front of the turban, there was a gold plate that was mounted on the front of the turban. And in the Hebrew lettering, it says, Holy to the Lord. And when the high priest stood there, there was a declaration that he's holy. It's like, in, in Christ, it's like somebody took a tattoo and put it across our head, and God every day writes it again. This one is holy. And we walk through our day being, and God's saying, that one is holy. He's holy before me. He's holy before me. And Zechariah is so excited about it. That's the crowning moment declared holy. And Zechariah is just had to be filled with wonder and with relief. We should be thinking of 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might be called what? It says the righteousness of God. Not just okay. Not just I uh, fixed him up a little bit and hopefully he'll keep up that. He declares a fact of a truth about us who we are at our very being, that we are declared the righteousness of God. Colossians 1.21 says, You who are once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, which, which is all of us, he has now reconciled in his body of the flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. He, he removes all the stuff that we couldn't do anything about and then he casts on us and he says, you are not the same person anymore. You are holy and you are blameless and you are above reproach. Not just as a nice idea, but that, that's who you are. Ephesians 4 says that we have a, a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Again, God doesn't just fix us up. My first car was an old Volkswagen. I remember it, it hit, they hit about 95,000 miles, and the engine goes, it's like done. So they're, but they rebuild these. They so rebuild them, and then they go for not quite as long the next time, right? God didn't do that with us. He didn't fix us up. It says that he takes the old self that's been crucified and dead and casts it away, and he makes us new, brand new, something that we were not before. A couple things here to note in this, what, hap what doesn't happen here, actually. First of all, interesting, Joshua standing there, he says nothing. He says nothing. He's being accused, and he says nothing. And the reason he says nothing is because he's guilty, right? He is clothed in sin. He is unworthy to enter the, the Holy of Holies. Scriptures tell us there's none righteous, no, not one. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Every one of us are like sheep who've gone astray. And so there's nothing he can say. So he stands there to let the Lord speak on his behalf. And second of all, he doesn't do anything either. 
High priests were all about doing something. And he doesn't do anything. What do we want to do with our sin? Whether before we knew the Lord, but even after that, we think we have to do this too. We've got fi- to fix it up, right? Just got to fix it. Wash those clothes, you know, scrub them really good and put those old clothes right back on again, right? Or stitch them up and patch them up and think that that's going to be good enough. Or, or if we think we just brush off the dirt a little bit because it's really not that bad and that we're okay. But Joshua does none of that. He doesn't attempt to fix himself like we so often do. And so he stands there, and then we get what happens. We get this great exchange that we just described, where God exchanges his filth for righteousness. And God steps in and takes care of all that. Not only is the old removed, but blessing, holiness, righteousness, and purity is given in abundance. Colossians 1 again says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to a share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We are never qualified by what we do. We're qualified because he's made us qualified, which is good news because then we're not disqualified by what we do or don't do either because that's not part of the deal. He chooses to qualify us and lets us share in his inheritance. Isaiah 61.10, just gorgeous verse. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, or as a bride adorns herself with jewels. A statement of who we are. Number three here, verses six and seven. Then God calls him to walk in his ways. God charges him because now he's righteous. He's able just to let the overflow of who he is show up in the way he lives, to live in the righteousness in which he's now clothed. So God says, I'm going to tell you who you are. You are righteous and holy. And guess what? People that are righteous and holy live a certain way. They walk in my ways. But it's not because you've got to make it happen, because that's, if you, that's who you are. That's what will overflow from your life. That's his intention to accomplish in us. And then he goes on to say in um, the second part of that, it says, you will rule in my house. By the way, Zechariah and Joshua are saying, I'm going to rule in a house that's not even built. And really, God's talking about someplace else, but that's the picture here. It says, you'll rule in my house, and you will have the right of access among those who are standing here. Where is he at? And what's he seeing? He's seeing God the Father and the Son and this freedom that, they didn't have the freedom just to go into God's presence at any time like we do. And he says, because of, you're holy and because you're different, because I've made you different, I'm going to give you free access to the very face and throne of God to come and go all the time. And there's no more veil in between, and there's a welcome to say, come in at any time. Ephesians 4, verses 22 on, and Colossians 3 Give us a picture of what we've just seen here once again. Remember those verses? It says, put off. And what does it tell? It puts off, and it gives a whole list of all the crud that we let flow into our lives and we let come out. It says, put those things off. Before Christ, we couldn't put them off because they are who we are. But because that's not who we are, when we do those things there, there are things that we've grabbed onto. There are those dead ways of living that we know don't bring any life for us anymore. So he says, you can take, when, they, when you see those showing up in your life, just put them off. 
Put them off. They're not part of you anymore. And then he says, and put on, tells us, which is just a, a metaphor for living and walking as an overflow of who we are in Christ. Now we can put on kindness and compassion and tenderness and patience and love and all those things because they're an overflow from who we are, the Holy Spirit residing within us that produces all of those fruits in our life. So it's a picture of every day we get up and we go, when those old ways come, those old dead ways of responding to the world, it says, get rid of them, cast them off, cast them off. And then let the Holy Spirit bring overflow as you put on afresh again those new things. I don't know why I have so many illustrations here being smelly, but like I said, I was just out in the desert for 10 days, and I didn't hardly bring anything with me. So um, I, every, uh, in the evening, I take off my things, climb in bed, and then in the morning, I put the clothes on. But I put the same clothes on every day for 10 days because um, who cares out there, right? But there's, we're not supposed to put on old clothes, dirty clothes. Put old ones on, but we're not supposed to put on dirty clothes. You take off dirty clothes and you throw them in the laundry basket, right? And there's something just not natural about every single day getting up, and I put on the same, and I'm, and I'm starting going, this is not smelling good. It's like when you notice yourself, you know it's not good. And putting those on every single day, and we do that as believers all the time. We grab onto those old patterns as though that's who we are, and God's going, what are you doing? That's not even who you are anymore. And that doesn't hold ownership over you anymore because you're children of the king. You are now slaves to righteousness, not to those old ways. It says, leave those in the laundry hamper where we tossed them all those years ago and enjoy the clothing that I've given to you. I know when I first got home on Wednesday, the very first thing I did, I said, hi to everybody. And I went straight in the bathroom and filled up the tub, and it was no bubble bath, but they, it still took a good bath, and it felt good. Put those clean clothes on. Our old self has died. That's what happened when it was crucified. And we're to cast it off in our living, and we can because we are not the same person. We're a new creature, and daily we've been clothed in the clothes of righteousness. The very last thing might be that Zechariah sees his vision, he sees this sin all removed, and he sees this righteousness given, he's watching this scene, and he must have wondered, how can that happen? There was, there was no sacrifice. Not, nothing, the things that need to happen in order for this to happen, none of those things happened, there was no sacrifice, so how can this be? And they must have wondered it. Verse 8 and 9, it says here, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. And behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its subscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And then you will be able to invite your neighbor to come under your vine and under your fig tree. We have a clear prophecy here of the coming of the Messiah. The answer is, how can this be? That's because there is, there is one coming who will be the one sacrifice for all time that will remove our iniquity once and for all. And Zechariah gets to see this vision. I mean, he's called familiar terms, the servant, the branch, and the stone, all referring to the day when Jesus is going to come and, and bring salvation for us 
interesting that we get two aspects of the prophecy here because when we get this, this picture of this, this one coming who's called the servant in the stone, which is Jesus, who's going to in one day bring salvation, but then it also looks ahead even beyond that to that final, final day when, there's, when God has restored his work once and for all. People here were always nervous because they were working that they were being, they were being opposed all the time. And so you, there's no rest when you're in being opposed and when people are threatening you. So there's, there's no peace. So, so even like when we see about Nehemiah, remember they had to hold their swords? It's because there wasn't peace in the land. And he's talking about there's going to be a day when you can go to your vine, your fig tree, and put your head back on it, and you can just go to sleep. And there's no worries because he's brought peace into the land. And so they're wondering, how can this be? The, the vision points Zechariah to the day when Jesus will come and bring his kingdom. And Jesus who comes is going to finish that work in, what, one day. And it's the day that we celebrate around the table every single week, over and over again, the, the giving of his life from the cross. Because Jesus comes like Joshua. He comes like a priest. But he comes as a very, very different kind of priest. The Old Testament priests, you remember, had to offer a sacrifice for themselves, Leviticus 16, and then for the people. And they did it, but it was inadequate. It only pointed ahead to a future day when there would be a sacrifice that would actually for all time, resolve the sin issue for people. Because it wasn't adequate, they had to do it over and over and over and over again for hundreds and hundreds. I mean, this went on and on and on. John Fisher wrote a book called um, On a Hill Too Far Away, and he kind of humorously, in a way, describes what it was like for the priests as they were standing there. And we get descriptions in the Bible where they were, they were doing thousands of sacrifices, thousands I mean, think about it. You've got an altar, and it, there's nothing pretty about the scene at all. It's, it's, it's the slaughtering of these animals as a sacrifice, one after another. It's, the scriptures tell us it, it runs out of the temple and out through the, the drains into this valley, which is called the Valley of Kidron, which is the Red Valley because there's so much blood. And you wonder if some of those priests are standing there, and they're covered in blood, and they're covered in this smell and all these sacrifices. And you wonder if they ever just stopped and said, People, please stop sinning, you know? What? Please stop. But we don't. And there was a need for a one final sacrifice because those sacrifices were never enough. So we have the branch, the servant, the stone, and he does something very, very different. Hebrews 7 tells us that he is the, he's an offering that's perfect. It's a perfect offering for once and for all. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that not only is, is Jesus the priest, but he is also the sacrifice as well. He does both, and he offers himself on our behalf. And then Hebrews 10 tells us because of all of that, it was only needed to be done once. And once for all, and it's all done and all finished. And it was all done in a day. And our response should be like the song we sing, Oh, praise the one who saved my soul. And he raised this life up from a pit because that's what the Messiah did for us. And here in this picture of Zechariah, we get to see a picture of that. And as they looked ahead to the final day, when God would make us something new and something different. So a couple things. One, for those of us who know Christ, the truth of the scripture is that you are something that you were not before. Um, we are, 
we're defined by our nature, and, and our old nature was crucified, and we were given a new nature, and the Holy Spirit took up residence in us, and we become something that we were not before, and God tells us who we are. We're a new creation. We're beloved children of God. We have value that's immeasurable because of him. Uh, we are each uniquely chosen to be his. And it's not just who we are as long as we're doing okay. It's who we are all the time because that's who we've been made to be today. And the one who declares it is the one who speaks in the very beginning of Zechariah. The Lord of hosts speaks it. We have the table here and we have it every single week to remind us of that true story. The, the, the story that has changed us, that is the, the defining line of all that we are and that all that God wants to do in us. Uh, if our, our music team can come back up front again, we get to once again gather around the table as we talk about that we have a seat there. If you know the Lord, it's like you have a placemat there and your name is there for you. That's it's got your name there and God's, the Lord's your host waiting for you to come. And we can come around the table because the Lamb of God has come and taken away our sin. And that those of us who know Christ are new and we're dressed for a feast, which is just that this is a picture of that feast that we're invited to. Here are these words about, from, uh, from the Lord to us from Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he's raised us up with him. He has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in all the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards each of us. In Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of the result of works, that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand in order that we should walk in them. If you know Jesus today, you are beloved. You are righteous. Did you know that? You are his child. You are embraced. You are welcomed. And a whole bunch more that I don't think we have any concept of. I really don't think we get it all together. It's just what has happened is beyond our ability to get a hold of. But it's true. And as we sing, we gather at his table and we give thanks to him. Here at the Vineyard, if you're visiting, if you know the Lord, you're welcome to the table. And we break off the bread, uh, the, Jesus, the bread of life, the servant. And we dip it in the cup, representing his blood for us. And as you do so, give thanks for his love and give thanks for his work. And give thanks for the company of one another. Lord, we thank you for... Thank you for doing everything we never could ever possibly do. Thank you for not leaving us in the state that we were. Thank you for doing a complete work 
all the way. Thank you for inviting us freely into your home as your own. And as we take the bread and cup, Lord, we want to um, declare and celebrate um, your incredible abounding love poured out on us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Mercy, God, for every day that we walk and make mistakes, and we're just flawed. That's just who we are. And yet, God glorified us. You don't see that. You see the cross, and we look to your blood. 
to that has washed us white as snow, and we had, we, we want to stand in that place. God, would you help to remind us every minute who we are? Thank you, Lord, that you are our good, good Father, and we are your children. from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God?
level at the foot of the cross that every mountain that is high will be made low every crooked road will be made straight and every crooked heart that thinks it's not worthy enough is worthy enough 
to be saved in Peter. In Jesus alone, my atonement is known. I stand on In Jesus the King, my salvation he brings. I stand on In Jesus alone.
my salvation he brings. I stand on grace. Micah, why don't you open the other door and let that beautiful light in here as, uh, as we are each week as we are sent as different people that as we live and he lives in us, it reshapes the world around us because that's what he does. As we're sent, we have one that walks with us who's a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious who all week can speak to us the truth of who we are. And you yourselves, like living stones, are each being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices, which is all the things that we apply our hands to today and tomorrow and through the week, all acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And as such, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may each abound in hope. Amen.